Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I am Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And today kind of wanted to have a conversation going off of what some of uh, some of the readings have been lately. And basically one of the books in the Bible that give me the most questions, which is Revelation. Um, kind of going through the New Testament in particular, and you correct me where I'm wrong here, Father. It seems that most of it is this is what happened. This is either writing down what I remember happening or me writing a direct letter to you telling you what to do. But for the most part, aside from when Jesus is giving parables, it's pretty direct. This is what happened, straightforward, or a teaching moment where Jesus is using analogy but his analogies still are real life things you're seeing every day like fig trees or farmers or something like the shepherds stuff like that and then you get to Revelation and it's it's completely different it's um, it's it's I I, I like to hope it's analogies because there's some scary stuff in there like flying dragons bringing down all the stars Um, so I, and so so with this being a lot of our conversations having been about kind of how to look at life as an adult in, in looking to the scriptures, that's the starting point as far as where I wanted to kind of dive into this because just went through that whole book and yeah, I mean obviously there's a lot of important stuff there, but it is very different than everything else in the New Testament and just kind of wanted to see what is the appropriate starting point and groundwork for that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a great question. Uh, as you point out, Joe, the Bible consists of some different genres of literature. We often think of the Bible as a book, but it's really more accurate to think of the Bible as a library of 72 books. Mm-hmm. And each book has its own character to it, the Gospels uh, have a historical accuracy to them. Uh, Other books in the Bible, in in the Old Testament in particular, have some of the same qualities as the book of Revelation. There's a genre of literature known as apocalyptic literature, and it uses uh, a lot of symbols, and it uses uh, different Uh, kind of language in order to communicate a truth. And that's one of the reasons that we also don't just say we embrace a literal interpretation of the Bible. It doesn't make any sense. We we never take a literal interpretation of literature. We take literature on on its own merits. When we read a poem that's meant to be highly symbolic, we look for the truth that's underneath it. That's true whether that's, you know, a poem of Robert Frost or whether that's a poem in the scriptures. So, in any event, the book of Revelation is a different genre of literature. The alternate to a literal interpretation is not that it's make-believe. It just means that we're looking for the truth. We're expecting to find the truth through a little different lens. Uh, Again, whether we have impressionistic art or whether we have a strong realism, two paintings can still be describing something that's very much a reality that's that's true and so we get that also in the Bible different ways of expressing the same truth uh, as you point out Joe the church 
reads through the book of Revelation in the, some of the, the readings at Sunday Mass during the Easter season, and then also for those who pray the Liturgy of the Hours, which is something that's probably also, also worth talking about at some point, which is uh, a prayer of the Church that's arranged around uh, different psalms and readings and prayers that unites people all over the world. It's mm-hmm. a liturgy. It's really the Church's prayer. In the Easter season, the long reading from the Office of Readings or Vigils always comes from the, the Book of Revelation. <clears throat> that, that's actually what brought this up. Was That was on mm-hmm. the radio pretty much for a while there, so then I... Cause, so then I just basically read Revelations, so and that's what brought this whole thing mm, up. Nice. So, okay, great. But well, thanks didn't for mean tuning to derail in. you there. Thank you. <laughs> no, that's great. <clears throat> yeah, and it certainly is one of our, our goals at We Are One Body Radio is to share with the listeners some of those treasures of the church that the average Catholic doesn't always come across. And so I'm delighted to hear that that was something that uh, you were listening to and that piqued your interest and that got you to go deeper. And that's mm-hmm. That's really what we're looking for. Um, so <clears throat> the, uh, the book of Revelation, there, because it's symbolic language, there, there isn't a single interpretation. And again, one of the beautiful things about symbolic language is that uh, a single expression can point to multiple truths. And just to give one example, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, it speaks about a great sign a woman is seen in the sky, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and crowned with twelve stars. And she labored to give birth to a male child. Now, when we hear that, several things come to mind. First of all, probably the Blessed Virgin Mary, since we find that her child is the uh, is being targeted by the enemy and uh, who tries to kill him and so we immediately think of the, the Virgin Mary, probably especially as Catholics, we think of that. Mm-hmm. And then we have a lot of images of Our Lady crowned with 12 stars and Our Lady of Guadalupe, that beautiful image that depicts Our Lady clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet. And But uh, also the bride who gives birth to the the male child is the church. The church is laboring to give birth. And technically speaking, the the church's theology has always held that Mary did not suffer from labor pains because they were a cause of they were caused by the curse, and since she was free of original sin, that she would be free of the curse of Genesis, and she wouldn't have labor pains. And so that's always been the uh, the theology or the you know yeah the the teaching of the church. So then we say, okay, well it's not exactly Our Lady, although certainly there are aspects of it that point to Our Lady, but what who is giving birth? <laughs> Who is laboring to give birth? Well, the church does. The church suffers, and that gives birth to new Christians, who are also the target of the enemy, who wants to steal them away. And then we also say, well, not only is the, the church this sort of... And then another image that we could see for that woman in Revelation 12 is Mother Zion or Daughter Zion. There are different feminine images that are used for the nation of Israel who finds her fulfillment in the coming of the Messiah. So Jesus, in a, really, in, a, in a real way, is born of the nation of, of Israel. Now I'm speaking about biblical Israel, mm-hmm. not about the, 
the nation over in the in the Middle East right now. Um, but uh, is born of Judaism, is born of uh, uh, of Mother Zion, and so in one image, in a symbolic language, at least three different things can be expressed, mm-hmm. and then somebody might be able to apply that to themselves personally. Now, nobody is clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, but in a certain sense, every woman is also depicted in that image, and every woman who labors to give birth is doing something cosmic. There is a, a radical change in the universe when a new life is conceived in the mother's womb, and then the whole world is changed when that new life comes to be among us through birth. And so the point being that in the symbolic language of the book of Revelation, there's, there are a lot of different meanings that come forth, and no one of them is perfectly correct. All of them are meant to be taken together, and then we can also see the kind of parallels and connections that by comparing them and, and praying with those images. So when one reads the book of Revelation, one should read it with a certain amount of, uh, of reverence, as you were doing, Joe, and saying, okay, I'm going to try and take this in and see what comes to me, and I'm not even going to claim that I understand it mm-hmm. after one reading or after 20 readings or after 20 years. There's so much that's there, and so we should allow it to keep unfolding before us like any beautiful mystery. Okay, so so on that note, the, the, there's obviously a, a bunch of, of follow-up questions there. Um, it, it seems that it repeats part of itself in terms of, of I, I don't have the, the numbers of the chapters, but it seems to be a couple series of sevens that repeat themselves through the same whole theme. Is that just the way it's written, or is that just to, to double down on the point kind of? What's that all about? Yeah, well, and again, just to affirm and encourage the kind of approach you're taking, when you read over it, a certain pattern emerges, or you see some connections. There are some numbers in the book of Revelation. What do those mean? And the most important thing that you can do is carry some of those questions with you. And I think it's one of the wonderful things about our faith, which is, as you mentioned, has been kind of the uh, theme of our series together, that there's more than what you learn when you were 10. Mm-hmm. That there are more answers than even the questions you could formulate when you were 10. And that's not just true about 10, but at age 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, we still keep coming up with questions and maybe we carry them with us for for several years. So uh, I, the questions about the book of Revelation are the kind of thing that I do carry with me. And so when Pope Benedict gave a couple of audiences about the book of Revelation, I read with great attention, and he explained, gave some, you know one interpretation of some of the symbols that are there, which is really uh, striking. I can share a little bit of that with you. But in terms of the Please, sevens, yeah. there are uh, one one way to read the whole book of Revelation, which was been put forth by the fathers of the church. But Scott Hahn did a great service for us in putting it together in a little book called The Lamb's Supper that I just can't recommend highly enough. The Lamb's Supper by Scott Hahn. And he looks at the book of Revelation all through the lens of the Mass. He says what the the book of Revelation is describing is the Mass as it takes place in heaven. And so the first part of the book of Revelation, and we hear about the seven churches, Mm -hmm. and these seven words to these seven churches, and the, the candles, the seven candles. Now, if you ever go to a Mass with a bishop, 
you'll see that there are seven candles that are lit on the altar. And in the, in the readings at the beginning of Mass, which is also the beginning of Revelation, we have these exhortations to the particular church. Each particular church has its own message. It's like the homily. And the exhortation of the Word of God combined with the interpretation of that word for the particular church is the structure of the first part of Revelation. In the second part of Revelation, the, the Lamb appears, the Lamb who is slain, mm -hmm. which is the same thing that happens in the Mass. The Lamb is there who is slain for us. And some of the words from the Mass, behold the Lamb of God, and uh, speaking about the Lamb who is slain, the sacrifice of the Lamb is the, the most prominent theme in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. or is, that theme is most prominently presented in the book of Revelation compared to any of the other books of the Bible. And so we get these windows, and then the prayers of the saints and incense rising from the altar, and, uh, and then it has this cosmic reality to it that affects the whole universe, and it affects heaven and earth. And So anyway, Scott Hahn did this wonderful treatment of seeing and understanding the Mass through the symbols of the book of Revelation, which is wonderful, and uh, gives us a great insight into the Re book of Revelation, but also into the Mass. Mm -hmm. So the number seven is a number that we discover throughout uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is always a number of perfection or completion. And so in saying that Jesus spoke to the seven churches, it's the same as saying that he spoke to all the churches and continues to speak to all the churches in, 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 his, uh, in the Liturgy of the Word. Now off of that, is that... Because he, he gives a different message to all of them, some of which were, you're doing all right, some of which is, you're messing up here, here, and here. And some of them he's using Old Testament terms with them in terms of who you're intermingling with, which I'm assuming was just a group of people that existed throughout the time that everything was being written. Um, but is that a message to as far as the inevitable schisms that happened, or was that at the time we had like the seven churches as far as whenever they wrote the letters each one was to an individual church location kind of which way was that supposed to go or is it not literal at all like the rest of it well and the the answer Joe is is the regular Catholic Catholic answer to these things both <laughs> so it one theme that you can take away from uh, all of our discussions and that I'll say and be happy to say again at other times almost always when we pose questions like that the answer is both okay. and that's how the uh, because the mystery is greater than reducing it to one or the other so yes there were those actual churches at the time that the book of revelation was written and those messages were surely directed toward those particular seven churches but as we just said seven is also symbolic and we see that this book speaks not only to those seven churches at that particular time and refers to uh, even the, the beast at the time of the book of Revelation was probably the emperor Nero mm -hmm. that it corresponds to, but we see that it also applies to churches of all time in every time since the book of Revelation was written, there has been a time of persecution, either it just passed, it's ongoing, or it's just about to come. <laughs> We're, we're always in the midst of this configuration. And the book of Revelation gives hope for those who are being persecuted for their faith, on the one hand. On the other hand, it gives a challenge to those who have become lax and lukewarm in their faith. And this is a message that applies 
at every time. Mm-hmm. And so that's precisely how we read uh, really all of these things in the scriptures, both hands. There is a, a literal application at the time, and there is also a way to apply that to ourselves in our own situation at our own time. Well, with that question being applied here, uh, to do a little aside in, in the what's going on with there's always a time of them being persecuted, will be persecuted, or are being persecuted. You know, what should someone who's not in the mix of it, I'm trying to get at Syria here, you know, I'm over here in America, not in the Middle East. What should be the role of us who, obviously we have the power to annihilate anything that we want, um, but well before I was born we built that power, but that doesn't seem to fix the problem either. So, with that being said, what is the right call to action to do this if you're not immediately within the vicinity of where the persecution Well, Joe, it's close to my heart that you bring up the situation in the Middle East. I've had the blessing in my priesthood to be close to Middle Eastern Catholics in the Maronite Rite. It's one of the additional rites in the Catholic Church, and the Maronites come primarily from Lebanon, which is not the immediate focus of all the violence, but I think there are about a million and a half or two million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, which is a country of only about seven and a half million people. (laughs) So it has a huge impact on on that country. And also my friendship with uh, the Maronite Bishop, uh, Gregory Mansour, who is very passionate about speaking out about Christians in the Middle East has heightened my awareness to the situation. I had the chance also to interview for the radio a Syriac bishop who was ordained in the cathedral in Mosul in Iraq where there were Christians for 2,000 years and there are no more. Okay. Uh, and so, and he was telling me about his people who are, he said he receives emails every day of Christians that are being killed. And they have a very lively sense of suffering for Christ, and they find so much courage and strength in uniting their sacrifice to the cross and offering up their lives in martyrdom and witness to the the true God. So they really do have a beautiful sense of the kinds of things that are being taught in Revelation and have been lived out throughout Christian history. For us, I think there are a couple of things for us to take. One is that Christian persecution is still happening. It's not just an artifact of the past. Mm -hmm. And there are Christians who are really suffering heroically. And we should look to them with admiration for their goodness and courage and what the Holy Spirit is doing in them. And with a little bit of uh, shame for ourselves that we complain about having to give up a meal and people over there are giving up their loved ones and their own lives. So it should call us to a little more lively sense of sacrifice and a little more intense living out of our own Christian faith. And then in terms of what we should do internationally, I don't know that any of us is really in a position to make those decisions. But certainly uh, Pope Francis has constantly called for peace negotiations. We don't want to just destroy everything, because when we destroy everything, we destroy Christian churches, we destroy Christian people, Mm -hmm. we we destroy indiscriminately, and there are a lot of innocents who suffer. A lot of people were uh, destroyed by the atomic weapons we dropped on mm-hmm. Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So we don't want to just destroy indiscriminately. Is there a way that we can step in? Are there some measures that we can take? 
Well, I think so, and I think we've done some of that, and we have to keep praying for our national leaders to make those kinds of decisions. But we certainly don't want war, and we do want peace, and whatever we can do to stop the unjust aggressor and yet not respond to violence with violence, it's a hard tightrope to walk. Yes, yeah, so, so how do you do that? Do you get someone, and, and I, I guess this is going beyond just Syria, because obviously there's points where it crosses over, and maybe it's just a mental exercise to prepare yourself, but I mean, realistically, there's times where there are aggressors upon you, and sometimes, you know, what do you want, to, what do you do to that when someone shows up to you, or how should you prepare yourself? for that um, you know is it right to um, to wake up in the morning and say you know what I'm going to go out I'm going to make sure in case someone breaks in I'm going to have a gun in the cabinet to, uh, to, to be able to protect the family um, and there's only one reason that's there and it's in case someone comes in to make sure they go down before you do or your kids do so but it starts with a premeditated thought of it's, is that the right idea to go out and purchase that and keep it on you or keep it close by so I guess that's the starting point of this question and then I, I guess this, this is this obviously spun off of Revelation we got a little far from there but going down that route where does um, you know what's the thought process you should have um, with that well uh, they're moving into questions where the rubber hits the road. I mean, what's the practical application of our faith? Exactly. And so it, it is a great question. And those are the kinds of things that theologians do over time, is trying to understand those kinds of practical questions in the light of what God has revealed to us in Christ. And I want to direct it back to the book of Revelation, first of all, to say we should be zealous for martyrdom. The fullness of our faith is expressed in martyrdom. We are most like Christ when we can give our lives for our friends, not when we can take lives of others for our friends. So I want to hold up that ideal and say, mm -hmm. first of all, we should be ready to die and to give everything and to not be afraid. So I'm not there. <laughs> I'm just saying I, this is the goal that we should look to, first well, of all. To, to the next question of that, I think that most people intellectually would be better with themselves that compared to their family. Um, yeah, yeah, okay, I'm not, I'm not there yet. Okay, Got so, cut me off. <laughs> hold, holding up the first point, sometimes we move too quickly to what is allowed rather than what are we really striving for. So I want to I keep the ideal before us first. Okay. So uh, first of all, to because anyway, we can rationalize a lot of things. And uh, if we have a zeal not to kill but we have a zeal to offer our own lives in order, you know, out of love and to protect the flock, as, as Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his own life. I think it, it tests our hearts and puts us in the right mindset, first of all. Uh, secondly, we should have a reverence for the dignity of every human life. Because someone is crazy, because someone is violent, because someone is a threat, doesn't make them less valuable and less human. So St. Augustine said, you know, we need to love, well, Jesus said, we need to love our enemies and pray for them. We need to love them. So uh, we can't buy a gun to be an excuse so that we don't have to love our enemies. 
we need to love them. Mm. Then, uh, in the third place, we do have a responsibility, and people are entrusted to our care, as you said, uh, father protecting his family, his children, for example, who are about to be killed, maybe, by some unjust aggressor. And then, what is his obligation, as well as his right, is to stop the unjust aggressor. So, uh, stopping the unjust aggressor is different than aiming to kill. Mm -hmm. So, the first thing is to stop the unjust aggressor. Uh, now, again, there are passions in those situations, and our minds go crazy, and but we're thinking in a rational space right now mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of moral theology. So, uh, recognizing that we go crazy in those situations, okay, well, but what are we striving for? So, to stop the unjust aggressor. And why do we want to do that? Because we want the unjust aggressor also to turn to the Lord and live. We want the unjust aggressor also to become a saint. We want to uphold the dignity of every human person. And so, uh, we want to stop them from doing evil because doing evil is not going to help them, let alone the fact that we want to protect those that we love. But we've just, I'm just trying to untwist some of the selfish motives and self-protective motives and clan-like motives, us against them. We're all one family in the human race. And so I want to uphold that as much as possible. And then lastly, if in the process of stopping the unjust aggressor, we end up using deadly force, or in fact that's the only way to stop the unjust aggressor, then it can be morally per permissible to use deadly force. But you see how far down the line I've pushed that? Yeah. Because I don't think it should be the first thing, okay, a simple way to solve this problem is I shoot this guy and he dies, right? Mm. Then we're not really striving to be Christian if we've just checked it off with that level of simplicity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we want peace, we want conversion, we want the salvation of every human being, we don't want to kill people. And we need to really purify our hearts of, of any of those disordered desires to be more powerful and to be more in control and to just kill people. Fair enough. In fact, actually, th th that's a kind of a passageway to segue for the topic that I wanted to have in our next upcoming podcast, which um, in Revelations, the stopping of the aggressor is the army of angels. Um, and it seems like unless the angels have a very different purpose and presentation throughout the Bible and I wanted to do a cast on that about the adult interpretation of what angels are and what they should be so that is one of the things I want to bring up in the next one well Father I definitely would like to thank you for, for helping us down the beginning of this Roads of Revelation conversation and I get the feeling that it, it's going to continue with some carryover into the next one about angels but most of all I want to thank everyone out there for listening as well and for helping to have us grow as a podcast you know we only really grow by word of mouth and we'd like to uh, to thank you for for helping us with that so again thank you all for listening and I hope that this is helping you in your everyday lives and we'll look forward to uh, talking with you next week have a great week everyone